Well, this morning, kind of getting back into sampling of the various psalms, the the more famous ones or or better loved psalms. But this one still kind of helps follow on and some of the things we've been talking about recently, and I'll get into that later. But Psalm 40, a wonderful psalm, and uh, I think a, a great lesson for us as we look at it here this morning. So let me read it for us. Psalm 40 itself, again, the very word of the living, our living God. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So ends the reading again of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. May it bear fruit as we come before it here this morning. As we do, let me pray for us. Our God and our Father in heaven, now... We come before your word. We do ask your blessing upon this time. And we do ask that you would speak to us, reveal your word to us, reveal your will to us. Fulfill the promise that you have made, that your word goes out and does not return to you empty. Instead, may it accomplish what you purpose for it and be successful in the things for which you have sent it this morning. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us in abundance to open our ears and to open our eyes 
to hear and see that which you would have us learn this morning from your holy word. Make it, we ask, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might walk in accordance with your will for us. Our Heavenly Father, again, we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> Recently, as you know, we went through uh, a Wednesday evening study in the book of Revelation. And there was something in that book that, that really struck me. And it wasn't the imagery. It wasn't the prophecies about the future or revelations even about the past. I'm not sure those are really the point of the book anyway. The book is concerned with the future coming of Christ, to dwell with his people. One of the emphases of the book is, I think, found in Revelation 21.3, as we saw and we talked about, that God is coming to make his dwelling place with mankind from heaven to earth, to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. But if that's the end result, if that's what John is talking about, history, if you will, working toward, what does the church do in the meantime? And this is the thing that struck me in Revelation. It hit me twice in Revelation 13.10 and 14.12, but it's elsewhere in the book. I was struck by this call, repeated twice as enemies of the church are described and their actions against the church are described. John writes, this calls for endurance. This calls for endurance, or what is called elsewhere in the book, patient endurance. That really hit me as we studied Revelation. It's not about predicting the future. It's not about interpreting all these weird images. It's about the church patiently enduring whatever God has in store for us until he comes again and makes his dwelling with us forever. And we see that in other parts of the book. Three of the seven churches, I didn't see this the first time through, but I saw it when I went back and looked later. Three of the seven churches the Lord speaks to them and talks about their patient endurance. First in Ephesus, in Revelation 2.2. Thyatira, also commended for their patient endurance, in Revelation 2.19. And then the church in Philadelphia, in Revelation 3.10. In fact, in Philadelphia, there's a promise attached to this uh, reference to their patient endurance. And, it, and the, the Lord speaks to them and says, Because you have patiently endured, I will protect you from the hour of trial that is to come. That's quite a promise. If we patiently endure to be protected by our Lord. So there's this expectation of, of the church of Jesus Christ, a command, if you will, his word to us, not just the churches in Revelation, to patiently endure. It's talked about elsewhere in the New Testament. Luke 21, 19, Romans 5, 3, and 4, Romans 15, 4, and 5, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4, Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, Hebrews 10, verse 36, and Hebrews 12, verse 1. And then John himself opens his letter to the church in Revelation by describing himself as our brother, and our partner in the patient endurance that is in Christ Jesus. 
How have I not seen this before? <laughs> Such a theme in God's word, to patiently endure. Well, maybe it's because that's not a welcome idea in the world that we live in today, if it ever has been. Patient endurance implies, well, it implies endurance, and endurance implies suffering, difficulty. It implies waiting. Patience implies waiting. And it's not that waiting that's, you know, with a book on a chaise lounge by a pool somewhere in the desert. It's a difficult waiting. We don't like it because we live in a world that wants instant gratification. We want answers and we want them now. We want to know what's going on. We want to have some control over what's going on. Or at least be able to influence what's going on. And we feel that or experience it in many areas of our life. Parents, we feel that way about our children. Sometimes they feel so out of control that we have to patiently endure the work that God is doing in their lives sometimes. That's hard. It happens between spouses. We, you know, you counsel a couple about to get married, and one of the things you try to pound into their head, don't try to change the other person. Well, what do we do? <laughs> We want to make them something different than they are, and we have to patiently endure the work that God is doing in them sometimes. We feel it in our jobs. I can tell you I'm feeling it right now in my job. Not this one, but my daily work. Patiently enduring, worrying about what's happening. What can I do about it? How can I make plans? How can I work around it? Many are feeling this way in our nation right now. People are running for the presidency. We're going to have an election in several months. What can I do? What's going to happen? How can I influence it? Who should I vote for? It's hard to just patiently endure this crazy electoral process we go through in America. And yet that's what Jesus Christ calls his church to do. We have trouble even with that. Patiently enduring the plans of God to be worked out. Tell me, Lord, and tell me now. I want to know what those images in Revelation mean. I, know, I want to know what the timing is. And in the midst of all that, Psalm 40 comes to us. I think as wonderful instruction on how to patiently endure, how to wait for God's deliverance. Three ways, there are three themes in the, in the psalm that I see. One is to wait patiently, to wait confidently, but also to wait expectantly. Patiently, confidently, and expectantly. I want to look at those three things in the psalm this morning. And I do think this ties to some of the things we've been talking about recently. If we go back to Psalm 27, verse 4, and that desire to seek God, and those barriers that rise up in, in our striving to do that, sometimes what we need to do is just patiently endure as we deal with those various barriers that rise up against us, and do so patiently and confidently and expectantly. All right, so let's talk about those three things. The patience. The psalm kind of divides neatly into three parts, and I think the three parts fit those three themes or ideas. We see the, the patience of David reflected in verses 1 to 5. His confidence in the Lord reflected in verses 6 to 12. Some people would stop at 10, but I like prefer going to 12. And then the expectant 
waiting of David in verses 13 uh, to 17. In a way, this is a psalm about patience. We kind of joke around, never pray for patience, because God's going to give it to you. And how does he give it to you? Through trial and through waiting. <clears throat> In some ways, this is a psalm about patience, a commentary on, uh, on what patient waiting looks like. And I think patient waiting is confident, and it is expectant. And I think David shows this to us as the psalm progresses. And he tells us at the very opening of the psalm, and sometimes the opening of the psalm is the theme of the psalm, I waited patiently for the Lord. David has done this. And he's experienced God's response. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Now I think there's an interesting thing for us right there in verse 1. A characteristic of patient waiting implied that we don't we don't often associate with patient waiting. And that's this. Patient waiting is not silent waiting. What's David doing? He's crying to God. God heard my cry. We often has this, have this idea that patience is kind of meek and silent, quietly off in the corner, just kind of waiting for things to happen. That's not patience, according to this verse. David is patiently waiting, but at the same time, he's crying out to God. Hear me. Incline your ear to me. Again, we have this image of patient people as being calm people. The mellow fellows, you know. The uh, peaceful soul, patiently, silently waiting for whatever they're waiting for until it comes. But David is crying out to the Lord his God. We don't know exactly what he was crying out for. There's a little hint in verse 2. We really don't know what it was. But what we do know is that he made his desires known to the Lord, crying out to God, and that the Lord inclined to him and heard him. The Lord, it's this image of the Lord bending over. I hear you, David. I hear you. So patient endurance, to begin with, is not necessarily quiet endurance. You've got the right to cry out to God and make your requests known to him. The deep cries of your own heart. Cry out to God. Let him incline to you and hear you. So that's another question we can stop and ask even right now. What are you waiting for? What is your heart longing for? What are you asking God for? What is the soul music of your heart crying out to God in the requests that come from deep within. Cry out to Him. And then wait patiently for God to hear and for God to act, because He will. And David shows us this in what he himself has experienced. Verses 2 to 5. Whatever situation it was that caused David to cry out to God, he describes it in very powerful images. He talks about being in a pit of destruction in a miry bog. It's this idea of being trapped and I can't get out, of being sucked down like in quicksand. It brings to mind this, this idea of being desperate. It's almost as if David is desperate. Typically you see it in a movie or, or you, you might even see it in a survival show of some kind that when you get stuck in quicksand, the natural reaction for animals or people is to flail about, 
try to get out of this thing I'm stuck in. And what does it do? It just makes it worse. You just get sucked down even more. Kind of the image we might have of David and sometimes of ourselves. Again, what are you crying out for? And are you flailing? Are you struggling? How are you trying to get free? But what's, what's the advice when you're stuck in a miry bog in quicksand? Lay still. Float to the top. Kind of nudge your way over to the side. And, and then you can cry out for help as well. Hopefully someone hears and comes and helps rescue you from that situation. Well, with God, he does hear. And he does help. And again, that's what David has experienced. God drew him up from the pit, he says, out of that miry bog and set his feet on a rock. If you've been sucked down in quicksand, what do you want? I want something solid beneath my feet. That's what God gives David. He gives him a rock to stand upon, something to make his steps secure. Great imagery again. And we as Christians, who is our rock? Christ Jesus. That old parable, we build our house on him and we are wise. And when the winds and waves rise up, the house cannot be destroyed. David doesn't just walk securely, he sings along the way. God has put a new song in his mouth and he sings loudly for all to hear. A song of praise, a song of deliverance. Others hear David sing and turn to the Lord in fear and trust. Not fear, afraid fear, but respect, reverence, awe, and their own trust in the Lord God. David's deliverance and his song of deliverance helps others build up their confidence in looking to God for deliverance as well. David knows he's blessed, and so is everybody who trusts in the Lord. In verse 4, better to trust in God than proud people or liars. And then this, again, powerful imagery that David uses in this psalm. In verse 5, you multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, your thoughts toward us. None can compare. I'll proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. God's good works for David and for God's people are so numerous, you can't even count them. You can't even remember them all. They're overwhelming. And David rejoices and gives praise to God for this beautiful, wonderful fact. So here we have David who waited patiently for the Lord and was delivered. And David could wait patiently for the Lord because he knew the character of his Lord, a deliverer. Again, back to Psalm 27.4, that desire to know God. The more we know God, the better we know God, the better we know his character. The better we know his character, the more we can trust in him that indeed he will be our deliverer. Well, that leads to confidence. And so we see David's confidence in verses 6 to 12. It's it's especially in verses 11 and 12, I think, kind of the heart of that little section of confidence. A simple statement in verse 11 of, of faith in God, of confidence in him. Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. You won't hold it back. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me. I cannot, this is Jesus talking to his 
disciples, to the crowd in John 10, nothing can snatch you out of my Father's hand. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. You are safe. You are protected. I cover you like a hen covers her chicks with, with her wings. David is confident in the Lord. And he's confident in the midst of his current trials. Whatever he was delivered from in the past, he's got current trials. In verse 12, evils that have encompassed him beyond number. Iniquities, his own sin that's overtaken him. More than the hairs of his head, his heart fails him. Again, a couple things to think about right here. One is, here we have David's trials described as so numerous that he can't count them, which is an interesting contrast to verse 5, where God's wondrous deeds are so numerous that they cannot be counted. And I think what we're being told here is that those David's trials are great. God is greater. And that leads to David's confidence. The other is that patient endurance, it, it does not come without sorrow. Again, you're not sipping tea on a chair beside a, beside a pool. Patient endurance comes with sorrow. Again, we have this false stereotype about patience that it's just calm and serene. No cares, no concerns. But that's not, that's not what David describes. It's not what Scripture describes about our lives with Christ. David is confident. And in that confidence, he can be patient for God's deliverance. And so he is patient, as we've already seen. While he confidently waits, his heart cries out. Verse 12 is another cry for deliverance, as we saw in verse 1. So think about this. Christianity isn't, you know, it's often portrayed. You see uh, portrayals of Christians in movies or the disciples and historical things. Um, And it's always this kind of weird (laughs) Zen-like, guru-like, flat tone of existence kind of a hippie-like thing. Christianity is not that way. We're emotional people. We, we rise and fall with the, the things that happen in life. Christianity is for real people with real problems and, and real pains and real sorrows. But we serve a God who hears our cries and delivers us from distress. We're not looking for some Zen, some Buddhist-like equanimity with the universe. We're real people. We serve a real God. But it's also not a religion for people to wallow in their pains and sorrows and and in misery. We are people who wait patiently and confidently for the Lord to deliver us. Now you go back in this middle section of the psalm and it's revealed to us that the deliverance does not come through religious rituals. Go back to verse 6. It doesn't come through sacrifice and offering. These are not what God delights in. They're not even required, it says in verse 6. What has God required is, is faith. David knows this. God is his deliverance. Now David is a good, great Jewish king. 
he offers sacrifices. He does obey the, the rites and rituals of the law. But he does them knowing that that doesn't earn God's favor and deliverance. Because these things just point to the faithful God. That's all they're meant to do. It's God who is full of mercy and salvation, not burnt animals. So it's in God that David trusts, not in ceremonies. So again, Christianity is not a religion of ceremonies, of traditions, of rites, of of rituals. It's not a religion of karma and earning God's favor. It's a simple faith in a God who delivers his people. In verses 7 and 8, God gives David a prophecy. David is a prophet. And this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as quoted in Hebrews 10 that we read earlier this morning. The Son speaks to the Father. It is written about me that I desire to do your will. Your law is written within my heart. The old commentator Matthew Henry sees this as a reference to the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, also with the Holy Spirit. It's written, it's already decreed and decided that the Son is going to do the Father's will and to obey His law willingly. We're not told here in the psalm, but we know from the rest of the scripture why He did that. To save a people that the Father gives to the Son. So sacrifices of sheep and goats and bulls can't be desired by God or can't be sufficient the writer of Hebrews is making this point and draws from this psalm for that purpose. Animal sacrifice is only a shadow of the greater reality of Jesus Christ, about whom it was long ago decreed that he would obey God's law and do his will and offer himself as the one and only sacrifice for his people's sin. It does deliver us from our sins. It does save us from the punishment due to us because of God's wrath for our sins. And this is true for every man, woman, or child who admits that sin and repents, accepts Jesus' sacrifice, looks to him as savior, savior and deliverer, believes in him and trusts in him for salvation. Now, if that's true for you, then 9 and 10 are your verses. This isn't just David's claim, it's your claim. And it's something we ought to do willingly as David does. Tell the news of this to the great congregation, to God's people. Don't restrain your lips. Do not hide your deliverance within your heart, but speak of God's faithfulness, his salvation. Don't conceal the steadfast love of the Lord for you and his faithfulness toward you. If God has saved you, if God has delivered you from your own miry pit, pit of destruction from your own sin, well then praise him and boast about that work for you. David is patient, David is confident, but then David has an expectation of God as well. He waited patiently for the Lord's deliverance and he received it. He's confident. And from that place of confident faith, patient faith, David can pray for future deliverance and do so with a confident expectation that God will deliver. This is what we see in verses 13 to 17. David's troubles are not all gone. We've already seen in verse 12 that he's currently dealing with uh, great evil and his own sin. 
But in addition to that, in verse 14, there are those who would take away his life, who would bring dishonor upon his name, who delight in his hurt. David even says that he's poor and is needy, so I'm inclined to think this psalm is written before he became king, before the events of 2 Samuel that we read this morning. That time when David was still kind of a vagabond out there in the wilderness being chased by Saul. But here David can, even in the midst of his sorrows, his present sorrows, patiently and confidently and expectantly pray to God. Be pleased to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me, he says in verse 13. Put to shame those who want to harm me in some way. May all who seek you, including me, Rejoice and be glad in you. May they say continually that the Lord is great. The poor and needy, the Lord does take thought of David, and he takes thought of us, whatever our situation. The Lord is David's helper, and he's our helper and deliverer as well. It's out of this experience of God's deliverance that David can pray expectantly for future deliverance. So his prayers aren't just empty requests. It's not just wishful thinking. And neither are our prayers. We don't just throw things out there and hope God might answer. This is what people do when they go to a pagan temple. Put out a little bowl of apples or some incense. I hope, I hope something good happens. We're not that superstitious. We, have, we serve a real God who really cares about us, who inclines to us, who hears our prayers and answers them. And we know this. Everyone who is saved knows this. Anyone who has walked with God for any period of time can look back on their own lives. I know in some of your lives, many of your lives, what God has done for you. I certainly know what he's done in my life. The God who saves over and over and over again, countless times, will save again. Augustine has a great opening comment about this psalm, and I think it summarizes, in my opinion, David's patient and confident and expectant prayer, and hopefully ours as well. This is what St. Augustine writes. Of all those things which our Lord Jesus Christ has foretold, we know part to have been already accomplished. Part, we hope, will be accomplished hereafter. Okay, that's, that's good. God, Christ has made promises, and some are already done, and some will be fulfilled. But he goes on. All of them, however, will be fulfilled, because he is the truth who speaks them. This is David's psalm. But who gave David this psalm? Christ gave David this psalm through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Augustine rightly sees Jesus speaking through this psalm, making promises. And because he is truth, those promises are sure and certain to be fulfilled. Augustine looks back to what David looks forward to, and we look back to as well, the salvation accomplished by God for his people in his very own Son. And that's really where the bottom line is for us this morning. 
Has God saved you in Jesus? Then you can, and you should, live your life with patient, confident, expectant faith. Or with patient endurance, as it's put so well by John in the book of Revelation. There are promises yet to be fulfilled, but they will be fulfilled. That day is coming again, what we saw in Revelation, when God is going to make his dwelling place with man. For those in Christ, that's a day of great joy. For those not, it's a day filled with terror. For those in Christ, something to patiently wait for and patiently endure what happens until that time. But for those not in Christ, something to put off, something to delay, something they hope never happens. God is coming for them. And when that judgment comes, when his wrath comes, it's going to be on them for all of eternity. Don't be that person. (laughs) Repent instead and believe while there's still time. And if you believe, wait for the complete fulfillment of all of God's promises and do so with patient endurance. Do be confident in the God who saved you and that he will complete that work. Hope for it, not with wishful thinking, but with the confident expectation, the same confident expectation that David has in this psalm. And again, like David, rejoice and be glad. This saving God is your God. Sing a song of praise to God. Acknowledge him as your rock and your redeemer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do this morning acknowledge that you are our rock, you are our deliverer, that you have brought us out of the pit of destruction, out of that miry pit, saved us from the flailing about as we would try to save ourselves and only make our situation worse. For we can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do. But you have come and rescued us. You have come and saved us. You have pulled us out and set our feet upon the rock, which is Christ. And you make our steps secure and sure. Direct us and lead us again on that straight and narrow path. Help us to walk in the light and not in darkness. And may we be a witness to those around us. As David saying before the great congregation, may we be witnesses to those around us of the great work that you have done for us. Lord, help us to be patient, to be confident, but also to be expectant, trusting in the work that you have done for us and that the work you will do for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.